This program is brought to you by the Financing and Deploying Clean Energy Program at the Yale Center for Business and the Environment, a joint center at the Yale School of the Environment and the Yale School of Management. People underestimate the meaning of work for many people. So that you're kind of taking an identity of a region, then using that to pit a group against another. Welcome to the Yale Clean Energy Future podcast. I'm your host, Katie Evinger. This podcast series will unpack something we've heard a lot about lately, the clean energy transition. We want to know what it really means and how we can make it work for everybody. How can we make it just and equitable? Given our belief in energy justice, it follows that we think information about the transition should be available to everybody. For that, we created this podcast. We want to share the incredible work of Yale faculty and other experts with you. Because we're creating this podcast in 2020 and in 2021, we can't ignore the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic on the transition and also on Biden's plans to, quote, build back better. This season will therefore highlight the intersection of COVID and clean energy as we talk about the transition more broadly. Our first five episodes will follow the clean energy transition in rural America. Today, we'll talk about the disproportionate health impacts of coal production, the cultural significance of coal, and how fossil fuel companies have then manipulated this culture to play into this idea of the rural-urban divide. So we're going to talk about coal in this episode, and it might seem strange to talk about coal because it's kind of on the outs, but that's actually why it makes the perfect first subject. We want to understand how can we avoid leaving people behind in places where conventional energy sources are kind of packing up shop. So for some background, in 2020, coal produced 19% of U.S. electricity, and we primarily get coal from the rural west or the Appalachian Mountains in the east. So in the rural west, companies tend to mine coal by either leasing public lands or by extracting fossil fuels from reservations. And then in the east, coal mining began in the 1800s when companies bought up land and took advantage of cheap labor sources to mine it. So I'm going to bring in Dr. Laura Bozy. She's a professor at the Yale School of Public Health and the director of programs at the Yale Center on Climate Change and Health. She's going to help us understand mining in Appalachia. She completed her PhD dissertation on Appalachian coal country, and she paints a very honest picture of the human and environmental health effects of coal. We have silicosis or black lung disease where the dust is incredibly harmful to miners' health, but that dust, especially for surface mines, then also is found at elevated levels in communities around the mines, also with health effects. So the actual mining of coal can result in things like black lung, which as you can imagine is even more problematic with COVID. And then surface mining, which is also known as strip mining or mountaintop removal, pollutes communities. And the health effects that Dr. Bozy is referring to with this kind of pollution include elevated birth defects, higher rates of heart attacks and coronary heart disease, as well as significantly higher dementia mortality. Studies blame bad air and water quality from mining as the reason behind these negative health impacts. And then particularly with something like valley fills, when it's impairing the ecological health and impairing um, streams and the aquatic life that's within it. Valley fill is exactly what it sounds like. After you remove the top of a mountain to access the coal underneath, you fill the adjacent valley with all the extra dirt. Dr. Bozy just walked us through the health and environmental impacts associated with coal extraction, but what about the actual burning of coal? And then, of course, when you burn the coal, then we think we're more familiar with the kinds of, that kind of combustion, um, with particular and other kinds of air pollution. 
Okay, sorry about the Zoom audio quality blip there, but what Dr. Bozy said was that the burning of fossil fuels results in this particulate matter air pollution. And particulate matter are listed as a criterion air pollutant. They're small particles that can get into your lungs and cause serious health problems. And this kind of pollution kills disproportionately more black Americans than any other U.S. demographic. And a preliminary study out of Harvard shows that communities chronically exposed to this kind of air pollution are at a higher risk of death from COVID-19. And then once it's combusted, then there's coal ash that needs to be disposed of. And there are um, dangers with, with that coal ash either filling, um, as has happened before, or, or seeping into water supplies with, with health effects. So yes, it's dirty throughout its life cycle. Coal ash is basically the toxic ash that's left over after you burn a piece of coal. And according to an article in Scientific American, that pollution too disproportionately impacts communities of color. Whether you're an extraction community, so you live next to a mine and you have black lung, or you're a combustion community, so you live next to a coal-fired power plant and you have some kind of lung disease because of particulate air pollution, you're going to be at a higher risk for COVID-19 because of the way that we burn fossil fuels for energy. So then, what else makes a community vulnerable to COVID? Well, we talked to Dr. Justin Farrell, a sociologist at the Yale School of the Environment, to discuss the role that rurality, like how rural your house or community is, plays in your ability to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic. He joins us here to talk about his Rural West COVID project. He and his lab surveyed over a thousand rural Westerners on how the pandemic impacted them, as well as their opinions on how to recover from the pandemic-induced recession. They sampled Republicans and Democrats. They talked to people from diverse racial and ethnic identities, Westerners from a wide range of socioeconomic statuses, and they found that there was especially high unemployment for women and Latinx populations, but that other direct and indirect impacts of the pandemic were experienced uniformly across the rural West. First, listen to Dr. Farrell explain why rurality makes communities vulnerable. Rural communities are uniquely vulnerable so, you know, rural regions tend to have higher levels of poverty, fewer job opportunities, heightened vulnerability to labor market shocks relative to urban areas. They also broadly, you know, lack access to health care and see, you know, a heightened reliance on telehealth just because of the sheer distance to travel to a clinic or a hospital. They also tend to have older and more health compromised populations and far more especially early on in the pandemic, limited access to COVID-19 testing. Turning to the findings, we did find that the effects of, of the pandemic were quite severe on rural populations, especially negative impacts relative to unemployment, overall life satisfaction, mental health, um, and just economic outlook. And you know what was interesting, though, was that in contrast to some work that we we found that these impacts were actually pretty consistent across age, ethnicity, education level, and sex. Oftentimes you would see disparities in some of those categories, but we didn't find those as much. Issues associated with rurality are universally encompassing. Then pair that with the added health effects felt by rural fossil fuel extraction communities, and you start to wonder, if coal is so bad for us, why is it still making nearly 20% of our electricity? And why is it so popular in fossil fuel producing states where the health effects are even more heartfelt? I 
think an easy answer to this is jobs, and that's certainly part of the reason, but it's definitely more than that as well. There's an ethnographic study out of the Florida Atlantic University that was literally titled, Coal is not just a job, it's a way of life, colon, the cultural politics of coal production in central Appalachia. The study concluded that coal remains a source of pride and enjoys a, quote, vigorous popular support. I actually totally get this. My mom's from coal country, and my grandma was really proud that her family worked in the mines. She would take us kids to see an intact company mining town called Eckley Miners Village, and growing up, my family had this gigantic piece of coal in our front yard that was kind of like a memento of our family's history. Anyway, Dr. Bosey's family is also from Appalachian coal country, and in this clip, she talks about the cultural politics of coal through the lens of her own experiences. Yeah, it's really a part of the identity of the region, and you can imagine why why that is. It's hard work. You know, my, my mom said how her grandfather used to say like 10 tons was nothing you know you kind of laugh about the song about I guess there's some song about mining 10 tons and he's like oh that was nothing um I mean it's really it's hard work it's dangerous work and it was the main work in in these rural towns and so I think it's really understandable that there was a a pride in the culture that came from that and that that's part of the kind of legacy of this region not only would white Europeans settle in Appalachia to mine coal, but also black Americans from the south migrated to the hills of West Virginia or eastern Kentucky in order to mine coal for a generation before continuing north as part of the Great Migration. For more on this history, check out the podcast Black in Appalachia, Black Coal Miners, and the Great Migration. People underestimate the meaning of work for many people. This is Dr. Farrell again. He's talking about the meaning that different kinds of work carry in the rural West. In our era of political polarization, cultural politics and warfare, wind and solar, and even in some ways recreation, or at least certain types of recreation, are, are labeled as you know, environmental, or they're labeled as liberal, or, or whatever you want to call it. And they do not have that same cultural power. But you know, those, those identities were fashioned by companies and the industry that wanted to kind of create that identity and link it to patriotism, link it to masculinity and all these, these aspects of identity that are very powerful. And so these are constructed. Um, they're not inherent to the work themselves, but it's going to take a lot of deep programming or a lot of um, cultural work to tie those two to their identities. What Dr. Farrell is saying here is really striking. He's saying that it's not just that people take pride in working a job that's really hard, but also that fossil fuel companies manipulated their employees to equate their jobs with this idea of loving their country. You know, I've heard some people talk about not wanting to be a traitor and those sorts of issues that people are dealing with psychologically or interpersonally with their friends and family. And so, you know, it's, it's just not that easy to switch industries. That's something that in terms of crafting policy that needs to be taken into account as well. Like I said, we'll come back to this jobs topic in another episode. But for now, let's dive into how companies keep coal around. Here's Dr. Bosey again on the process of constructing these cultural clashes. I also think that then that's been that that can be manipulated so that you're kind of taking an identity of a region then using that to pit a group against another or, or to say that because of that history, that means that you have to be, um, you have to have a certain position. And so I think that that, that, can be, that that can be really dangerous. One example of this kind of cultural manipulation that Dr. Bosey describes took place when the Trump administration attempted to gut the Clean Power Plan. 
Here's our next guest, Dr. Rob Klee. He's a Yale professor, a lawyer, and the former commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. So just for a little bit of context here with our next clip, Professor Klee attended the single clean power plan repeal hearing back when he was the commissioner for the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection for Connecticut, and he's describing his experience at that hearing in this clip. The repeal was fascinating. It was in Charleston, West Virginia, in the heart of coal country, and Murray Energy and their aged CEO was sort of scheduled to be the first sort of speaker in this public hearing about the repeal, which they were only holding in one place around the country, and they only picked coal country, basically to force everyone to come to that location, which was not easy to get to. So when he says there was only one public hearing for this repeal, that means there was only one opportunity for people to gather and share their thoughts on the repeal of the Clean Power Plan. It's not normal for something this big to only have one public hearing, and it's actually a huge violation of one of the core principles of environmental justice. It violates the idea of procedural justice, and we'll get into more of what that means later, but just know for now that this was a very problematic way to go about repealing the Clean Power Plan. It was meant to be a show, a show for the coal company executives to trot out their workers in their jumpsuit from the mines to this hearing to come talk about how coal is important to, to them. So that was the first half of the first morning of the two-day hearing. Everything else after that was in opposition. To me, the most important voices were the folks who had spent 12, 14 hours on a bus to come to this one hearing to talk about how the coal-fired power plant in their community was killing their residents and was largely killing poor communities and communities of color. These are the fence line communities, and they were saying, why? Why, why if you're the agency in charge of environmental protection and human health protection, would you be trotting out these coal industry executives to, to let you know, them keep doing things that are killing our, their communities? Dr. Klee in this clip, as well as Dr. Bozy and Dr. Farrell in earlier clips, all talk about the negative impacts of coal and how fossil fuel companies try to pit us against each other. Extraction versus combustion communities, rural versus urban, red versus blue, and that takes away from the real need to rapidly transition away from a fossil fuel-based economy. Of course, it's pretty scary to hear that your industry has an expiration date and that your culture might change. So how do we organize the transition to take everybody with us? We'll explore that and more in our next episode, so check back in for episode two of the Yale Clean Energy Future podcast. This podcast was written and edited by me, Katie Ebinger. Our executive producer is Vero Borgmeier, and the theme music was created by Dr. Turtle. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you want to check out additional resources, our website is cbay, which is C, B as in boy, E, Y, .yale.edu forward slash podcast. And if you want to send us any comments or questions, our email is cbay.podcast, singular, at yale.edu. Thanks again and see you next episode.